Welcome back to 24 Faithful. We are excited to be back on the podcast today. Today we are talking about season number three, getting started with that and going through the first six episodes, which is 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. And joining us today, as usual, we have Bradley Adams. Good to have you. Season three, woo. And we have Joel Wood with us as well. It's a good thing that Bradley decided to join us today because uh, I hear the reception in Abbotsford, Wisconsin is uh, very spotty at best. So it's a good thing that uh, during his field trip that he decided to join us today. I have a rough idea of where Wisconsin is, so... That's better than last week. As long as 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 it's a rough idea. A bit of trivia. I grew up in Wisconsin, so... Did you? So you probably spent some time at Abbotsford. Yeah, and Bradley can probably swing by and say hi to my family while he's around there. (laughs) Well, he's got a lot of time on his hands. All right. Well, we are, as I said, getting into season number three. Last week, we finished season number two. And this season takes place three years after season number two, taking into consideration David Palmer's presidency, we used that or talked about that last episode, how the last episode was within the first year of his presidency. This is taking place in his last year, and he is in the middle of uh, his campaign to become president again, or, or could he get reelected? And so that is kind of a, a the setting of the scene, at least for one aspect of it. But we also see that Jack Bauer is trying to find bioterrorists that are attempting to release a vial into Los Angeles or several vials of a virus going through there. And it starts with a body, an infected body being found right at the beginning. There was a nice explosion and infected body found. And so we have that. And then we have, uh, as I mentioned, President Palmer that is seeking re-election and so there's a scandal of course that is going on or potentially going on and working through that and jack is also um as he is starting to seek out the virus and the source of the virus uh there is also a tie to roman salazar ramon salazar and the salazar family who is being blamed for the the virus And so, um, and then later on, we get into some other things uh, that actually date back to Nightfall, which timeline-wise, this is six and a half years after Nightfall, but that part doesn't really come into play for several more episodes after that. So we'll get into a little bit more of that part at that point. But one of the big things that starts out in the very first episode is we see that Jack is struggling with a heroin um, habit. And that's what he used, at least in part, to be able to get undercover with the Salazars to begin with. And then he struggled with that ever since. And to me, it just shows how far Jack will go to be able to make a cover or to keep a cover. And as we see in season three, it, I guess he's not trying to become a heroin addict. He's continued to be a heroin addict, which kind of helps his cover in this season as well. Well, I mean, season three sort of continues that trend, which is that every season there is something stopping Jack something that's hindering him, something that's making his job a whole lot harder. So in season one, it's the fact that his family's been kidnapped. In season two, it's the fact that he has 
gone in, into a sort of hole of pit of depression after Terry's death and that he doesn't really want to live. So yes, he's going to stop this nuclear bomb, but kind of he, as we eventually do see, he, he's happy to go down with it. So that sort of hinders him in season two. And season three, it is this heroin addiction. We see in the first episode here, sort of the first mention of it, I think, I think it's actually the first thing that Chase says to Jack is that he's asking him how he is and saying that he's fine, just wants to get Ramon Salazar signing this this deal. He's cut with his lawyer and then references the fact that that's not what he meant. We spend the whole first hour leading up until the, the reveal that Jack has become addicted to heroin. And then it sort of plagues the rest of the season, or certainly the first half of the season, um, with Jack struggling without having his fix. And there's a couple of occasions in these episodes where he almost does. He's in the car with Nicole Duncan on the way to pick up Carl Singer, and he almost does it. He almost does it in the office. And phone call from Kim sort of pushes him off that, and he, he gets rid of it. Yeah, I really like this. I think it is nice to see something like this that Jack so almost sort of proved that he is mortal, that actually, you know, we know from previous seasons that he's he can be miserable and he can make mistakes and all of this, but for him to be addicted to heroin, for it to really, really, really cut into his work and his life like it has, it's nice to sort of take Jack down a peg a little bit. You can tell from pretty much the first episode on that Chase... Chase has a relationship with Jack that I don't think anybody really had up until that point as far as a co-worker. Not even, not even Tony, to be honest, um, in the fact that he was loyal to Jack, but at the same time, he had no problem getting in Jack's face, standing up to Jack, and basically telling Jack that he's, you know, where he's doing wrong and what he should be, what he should be doing basically telling him where he screwed up at. And I think I think Jack, in a way, Jack respects that. But at the same time, he's trying to put on this front, as he usually does um, when, he's having, when he's having these issues. He tries to put on this front like everything's okay, like everything's fine. But you can tell pretty quickly within the first episode that everything is not fine. And they, you know, like you said, they made little hints to it, um, asking if he's okay. And you could tell that it had something to do with drugs because of the way he looked, his posture. He was sweating profusely for some, he was sweating way more than somebody should be sweating, even wearing a suit. <laughs> he was sweating way too much. His, the perspiration coming off of his, off of his face, he was discombobulated, he looked like he was sick. So you you knew that it, it either had something to do with drugs or something to do with him being sick um, for somebody that hasn't, of course, seen the season yet. And I think that that was a, and then you find out later in the season that, you know, there's a question of, did he really even have to do that while he was undercover? And I think that's just another wrinkle to show that, yes, he's a federal agent. Yes, he's saved the world twice. But he's also got the same real world problems to deal with as the rest of us. And I think season three did a lot to humanize the Jack Bauer character. Um, I mean, of course, he was he was humanized in season two, you know, when dealing with his wife's death. But I think as far as the character, I think season three did a lot to humanize him and let everybody know that he's pretty much like everybody else. You like that he doesn't actually inject the heroin at any point in the season. Let's say he, he threw it away at the end of the first episode. He throws it away 
partly for fear of getting caught in episode three with Nicole, he never actually injects it or we don't see him inject it in the <clears> show. Do you like that they did that? I think that that was probably a a smart idea. I mean, something something like that would never work in, in 2020 because um, there would just be way too much backlash from it. <laughs> but even back then, I think that I personally wouldn't have had too much of an issue with it. I mean, I would have been, you know, caught off guard with it. I would have been like, whoa. But at the end of the day, I think it was probably a smart idea to kind of hint at it, but not directly see it um it's kind of like in in uh season one when um terry was raped uh while she was being kidnapped you didn't directly see it but the implication was there and i think that sometimes it's best to leave certain things to the imagination but i like the fact that every time he got close he would throw it away um but then when you know chloe investigated his office later in the season they found that it was empty so the implication was there but we never actually saw him do it i think it works from the perspective of in this season jack is sort of however many months clean i can't remember exactly what they say it's sort of two or three i think it is that he hasn't actually had it but obviously he's still not quite right with it i think it does work from the perspective of saying that okay he's had this problem and he's overcoming it and it's very difficult for him but he's not sort of relapsing into it i don't feel like I don't feel like the season benefits if Jack gets high. I think, okay, you know, he might feel a lot better at the time, but he's also going to be, it, it doesn't work for him as a CTU agent, certainly. Um, you know, he's going to be, he's going to be numbed. He's going to be in a, more ineffective being high than he will struggling through having not done it. I think he, he's, he's going to be better off like that in the long term, certainly, and even in the short term. Yeah, I think it's hard to really paint him as a, quote unquote good guy um when he's still shooting up heroin that's just my opinion i feel like we've had we've had we've had the is jack a good guy discussion already haven't we (laughs) (laughs) that's why i did the quotation fingers okay well the people listening didn't see the quotation fingers or they didn't hear the quotation fingers either but (laughs) well i told i told you to post a video a long time ago okay well if you wanted the video you could watch joel chugging a two liter of mountain dew As long as I get an endorsement deal out of it. There you go. Other fizzy drinks are available. There you go. (laughs) All right. But uh, continuing on here, we have, uh, Joel, you mentioned there about several of the drug things there as far as (laughs) in relation to 2020. Of course, the big thread going through here is a virus and, that's obviously a very big thing here in 2020 with uh pandemic going around and things like that. And so kind of looking back over this, a lot of thoughts go through your head. And obviously there's a lot of conspiracy theories and different things going on about what's going on now. But in the show here, we have uh, the virus that uh, at least the story that is being told is that Kyle Singer brought the virus over from Mexico And so there is a hunt for Kyle Singer because they need to stop him before he becomes infectious and starts spreading it to everybody else. So that's kind of a big plot here during these first six episodes to be able to get Kyle, which was really interesting because I thought the whole thing with Kyle lasted longer than these episodes, but it was actually over fairly quickly in the scheme of the season. And so, so that, that was interesting to me. 
I mean, I've mentioned before that there's a 12-12 split in this season of of A quality, which I think I actually did underestimate before, but I'll come to that when we review the season later on. Um, but in terms of the first half of the season, very much being about Jack hunting Carl Singer and the Salazars and all that stuff. And then the second half, very much divided at 1am, being about the virus in Los Angeles and Stephen Saunders and Michael Amador and all that stuff. It's interesting to me that in this first 12, there's actually a a fairly clear-cut split in the six as well. In the, at the end of 7pm, six episodes in, Kyle Singer is completely dispensed with. We've spent all this time thinking that he's carrying the virus, he's got the virus in powder form, he's infected with the virus. Somehow everything revolves around him. You know, Gael and Gomez have been tracking him and it's been all about him. And then suddenly he's not infected and he ceases to exist in the show and it becomes all about, next week we'll talk about Jack and the Salazars buying the virus off Michael Amador. I find it really fascinating. It's so split up like this, and there is that sudden stop of casting up doesn't matter anymore. Having spent all this time with him, thinking that he's really relevant, now gone. I think when you get to when you get to season three, I think that this is when when twenty four really embraces the. Um, I mean, in season one and season two, you kind of get it with the a plot and the b plot but in season three i think they started to really embrace the three act structure a plot b plot c plot and I, they tried to even during the first six episodes like i i thought the kyle singer uh plot lasted longer than it did um but it was over within the first six episodes and then um after that you had the whole conspiracy conspiracy and the whole is guy a traitor is he not a traitor and the whole thing we'll get into next week but even having kyle singer in there is is something that they've done all three seasons they have like these little oddball characters that play little small little small plots little small plot lines in the season and then poof they're gone and i think kyle was was i won't say insignificant but I'm not sure what it ultimately accomplished other than to unveil this larger plot of Jack going undercover again with the Salazars and Gael and Tony and the whole plot line that started pretty much in episode seven. Other than unveiling that larger plot, I'm not sure exactly like most of his scenes other than the scene at the mall and the final scene when they told him that he was basically clean and he wasn't infected. Other than those two scenes, I really could have gone without most of his scenes because most of his scenes were, you know, him arguing with his parents or arguing with his girlfriend or running from, from people trying to kill him. So other than those two scenes, most of the scenes are can pretty much run together. But it was good as far as unveiling the over the larger plot of trying to get Jack back in with the Salazars. Yeah, I mean it works from the perspective of works from the perspective of that we sort of have a not so much a target, but almost a something to look at and say this is where the threat is. You know, if you know you feel like with something like this, there possibly is an option where it could become a little bit too conceptual at the start. So we know we have the dead body at the start. And then we know fairly early on, or we're made to think fairly early on, that Kyle Singer is key to all this. And so actually we have we, we can look at him and go, that's what CTU need to go after. That's what Jack needs to stop. Um, and it, and I mean, the key part of it is very much just to force the UK, the, sorry, the US government into releasing Ramon Salazar 
and it fuels the prison break and it fuels all the stuff that Jack does to get back into his cover, obviously unbeknownst to the Salazars. Um, but that, that, that is the main role. I mean, he goes, Carl goes through a sort of very rapid version of the Mason transformation, which is that he's a, an absolutely horrendous character for most of his run. And then it comes to the point where he's going to die and he becomes sympathetic. You know, he tries to kill himself to save his girlfriend because he knows he's not symptomatic yet. So he's not infectious yet. So she'll be fine if he dies now. And then the scene that you mentioned when he sort of finds out that he's clean, the one before that, where he has that final goodbye with his parents or what he thinks is a final goodbye with his parents, that's quite effective. And I feel like I've spent four or five episodes with Carl Singer thinking he's horrible and I don't care about him at all. And yet somehow this feels slightly emotional and I like watching it. So, you know, the way that they handle characters like this and, and particularly Carl Singer, I, I'm continually impressed. Yeah. Did you get emotional? You got emotional, didn't you? <laughs> no. Okay. But it's, an, it's a nice scene. It's a really nice scene that fits really well into that episode. I'm, I'm really surprised I didn't have a Kyle Singer spinoff after, after that whole thing, kind of following Kyle's <laughs> journey <laughs> because, I mean... Surely there was something great that would have came from that. I would have sound, I would have sound off on it. <laughs> Every week it's Kyle Singer doing weird random jobs to be able to pay his parents rent. <laughs> there you go. And then his parents trying to find out where the money came from. There you go. Probably like a Breaking Bad type of scenario. But, but, but anyway, you mentioned about the whole scene in the mall. Which that was another thing that I thought was a little bit later in the season. That was season or episode three, and that was definitely an interesting twist here, brother. You, you wrote that here in the notes with Tony getting shot, and yeah, that was just, just it was I was a very big shock uh, because of course by this point we know that twenty four has killed off several characters. And Tony is one to where, I mean, this may be like a mix of emotions, but by this point, you're starting to like Tony. And now all of a sudden he gets shot in the neck and you see the blood coming out all over the place. And, and they're like, okay, I don't know if he's going to be able to survive. And if he survives, I mean, what's going to happen? And I was full Tony uh, made a fan club by this point. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, at this point, we don't know the, the whole plot that he's part of the, the triad that and the plan that they were going with and so i don't think him getting shot was part of that plot i don't think so either i think there was supposed <laughs> to be something that happened with it but that was i don't yeah definitely that was not part of it and that definitely put a good wrench in the whole situation i um i, th- I think that this is kind of the starting point of a a rough few seasons for tony because I think this is like the starting point to where like over the next couple of seasons, he like dies or comes close to dying like three times. And I think <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I'll have to go back and check. But I think this is like the start of it where he like either die, either comes close to dying or gets, you know, critically injured like three straight seasons. So it's a little bit of Tony becoming more of a active character because the first two seasons he was mostly <laughs> confined to uh, CTU, you know, with the occasional you know he left the office occasionally but this was more of starting the the 
trend of having Tony become more of a active participant in the day's events. And unfortunately he had to get shot for that to happen. But I think this is this is the this is when I started to really like I mentioned before, I didn't really like Tony in season one. He started to warm up I started to warm up to him in season two. He was starting to become a little bit more likable to me in season two. But by season three, I was I was on board. I was on board with Tony in, in season three because that's when they started to give him just a little bit more of a uh, responsibility and a little bit more of a substantial arc, if you will. Yeah, you're right. This is the start of Tony and his very bad run of bad luck. Um, first of, I think, four near deaths that he has in the next 50 odd episodes. The thing actually, actually about this as well is that it's the start of 24 becoming absolute chaos. Because if you think back to the previous two seasons, yes, there's a lot of big twists and things like this, but there's always, you know, a, a bit of a structure to it. And isn't it feels, you know, it feels fairly calm in it. So even like the Nina reveal obviously is the, the biggest twist they ever did. But there's also um, almost a sense of tranquility to it. Whereas this, and, and even, you know, season three, sorry, season two, episode three, <coughs> CTU got bombed. But there's a whole episode's build up to that. It, it, it's a tension thing and we're getting close and close and close and can they stop it? And oh no, the explosion happens and you're kind of stunned by it happening. With this, with Tony getting shot, it sort of comes out of completely nowhere and it just highlights how absolutely <coughs> mental and how much, 24 season three is basically just going to go right we've got all these things we're just going to throw them at the wall with no thought of anything but this is going to be absolute madness and it works it it absolutely works yeah yeah definitely and so they they're definitely like upping the the shock value in in a lot of those things and so taking these characters that that we care about or we've grown to care about and put him in these situations like with Kyle up leading up to his potential suicide and, and all of that kind of stuff. There is buildup of, I mean, just where you actually start to care for him toward the end, but there's a, there's like a long buildup up to the situation. Then it's like, it's negative. And it's like, what, wait, huh? That part almost feels anticlimactic, but, uh, but yeah, it's just really interesting how, how they put all of those, different pieces in there almost like all they're trying to do is go for shock value but, but like you said in here in season three it, it does work and of course we know they try that type of thing in future seasons and it doesn't always work out so well for them because there there's no cohesion <laughs> yeah, i'm not going to say the, the season number because it's almost as bad as legacy but but anyway so yeah so we have the the whole virus thing and the whole hunt for Kyle Singer trying to track him down and all of that and then you have at the same time Jack trying to get Ramon Salazar because the the threat came in that unless Ramon Salazar is released from prison that they're going to release the virus to the public and of course no one wants to do that and they're they're like okay well we're not going to give in we're not going to give up Ramon Salazar Jack's like no we got to do this of course, we know his whole plan now, but leading up to it, I mean, we just see Jack acting basically as normal Jack faction going against pretty much everybody else. But he goes in to break Ramon Salazar out of prison because he's not getting the green light and the okay from from the government, all the authorities or whatever, to be able to do that. So he's going to break Ramon out to take him back to Mexico. And it's it's completely crazy. But it's it works. It does well. And I really like the conflict between Jack and Chase as they, well, and, and a lot of the scenes, but as they're in the prison there leading up to it, 
And it, I think they make mention of it um, in there is that Chase is basically a young Jack Bauer. And so Jack Bauer going against Chase, Chase going against Jack, it's like seeing two Jacks go to go against each other. Chase, obviously a little less refined in his skill. And so doesn't beat out Jack, but yes, I really liked those interactions between Jack and Chase, but then also the interaction between Jack and Ramon as well. I think he plays very well as a villain and then how Jack and him have to cooperate for a period, even though they both don't really like each other. I mean, what can Dale Almeida, I think I'm saying that right, um, or at least I hope I am, who plays Ramon Salazar. I mean, he's he provides the best villain performance in the show to date at this point. All the villains we've seen in the first two seasons, he is the best. I mean, his first scene where he kills the lawyer and he, he talks and taunts Jack first and he taunts the lawyer and then he kills him with the pen and he threatens Jack. It's it's masterful. It is so, so, so good. And I'd forgotten how good it was until I rewatched it last week. I think it's probably one of the best villain intro scenes that the show did. Um, you just instantly get this sense, again, with the chaos, that this guy, you know, he doesn't have plans necessarily. He is just instinct and completely sociopathic and will do whatever the moment calls for in his mind. And if that involves stabbing his lawyer with a pen, then absolutely he does it. And he's so, so entertaining when he does anything. He's another one of those guys that you you look at and they have one in season one and season two, but he's one of those guys that you look at and you can't really picture him playing anything other than a villain. He just doesn't have any likable qualities on screen. He just comes off as, you know, this slimy, sleazeball, stab you in the back kind of character. And I think, like, you can tell in the conversation that Jack had with uh, President Palmer, where he laid out this uh, plan to break Ramon Salazar out of prison. Jack never, it never expected the president to release Ramon Salazar. This breaking him out of prison thing was part of the plan from, from the start. Because Jack knew that President Palmer wouldn't release him. So this was already in motion before the day's events even happened. And seeing him and Chase, because like I said, even the phone call with Chase before he got to the prison, Chase is not afraid of, of Jack. You see how some characters are, you know, they talk to Jack, but at the same time, they're sort of intimidated by him. Chase is not one of those people. He's not really intimidated by Jack um, because, like you said, in a, in a lot of respects, he is Jack. And he he's one of those characters that I missed the most um, after the season. Um, in later seasons, he's one of those characters that I wish would have came back, even if it was for a brief role. Um, he's one of those characters that I would have watched on a spinoff because I thought there was a lot more. By the time the season was over, I thought there was a lot more meat on the bone that could have been explored with Chase that wasn't really touched on. Like I said, I didn't read any of the uh, books and things that came out afterwards that I heard he was involved in. But as far as on screen, I thought there was a lot more that could have been done with the Chase Edmonds character, whether it be in this season or in future seasons, that um, he's one of the ones that I kind of wish uh, would have came back for a little bit more. Well, it's fairly nice in this six. I mean, we established that he, say, sort of a mini Jack Bauer, he's got this great relationship with Jack at least once, and they work together a lot in there, and obviously that's how they meet. And, you know, he has this relationship with Kim, and that's 
an interesting dynamic. And then the the fact the, the way that his and Jack's relationship briefly breaks down because of that. And then the fact that he sort of defies Jack as Jack would say mini Jack Bauer, but he decides that no Jack has just keep me here for the sake of it. I'm going to go and do this myself because I know it's the best thing to do. I don't care what Jack says. I don't care what Chloe says. I don't care what Tony says. This is what I'm going to go and do. And I mean, he's very effective. You know, he takes charge of the prison riots from the law enforcement side. He takes charge and controls how they're dealing with it. And yeah, you know, I think he's very, very effective in these episodes. And it's nice to see, you know, it's nice to see someone that's on sort of near Jack's level because they say we've had season one where he has Nina who's around, but you know, not quite the same level as Jack. And in season two, he's very much on his own. Season three has Chase and you actually get to see Jack partnered up and you get to see him working with someone who can handle his own in Jack's world doing Jack's things because Jack's things crazier than your average CTU law enforcement agent would do. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely like that they did bring Chase back in that novel. It was 24 Deadline. And that that was a pretty good storyline. I like that. But but like Joel said, I do wish that they would have brought Chase back on the show. That would have been nice. At least having something other than just a quick little mention. I can't remember for the season four and season five, but there was a quick little mention about Chase. And so, but I do wish that would have taken place. I mean, one of the scenes in, so just to sort of sidetrack a little bit, in this prison riot, I mean, one of the best scenes is the Russian roulette scene. Again, one of the ones I hadn't seen for a while and sort of forgotten how good it was, just how tense it was. You know, you know you're never going to kill Jack and you're probably not going to kill Ramon Salazar because he seems fairly critical to the plot at this stage. But the tension of they're in this very, very dangerous situation where all of these absolute thugs, criminals, murderers, you name it, they've done it, have got all these these guards and fake guards and prisoners, in the case of Jack and Ramon, um, lined up and are making them play Russian roulette. And it's just, it's so, so good. And you see as well, there's a, you know, the, the first guy, I can't remember what his name is, who does actually get killed, the actual guard, is too scared to pull the trigger the first time. And so the guy leading the riot, the guy leading this, this exercise, does it to himself to, you know, this is how you do it, nice and easy, and it's a blank. And then the second shot, the first one that either Jack or the guard fires, kills the guard. And you come, you see, oh, Jack was that close to dying. Yeah. It's just It's just a really, really nice, nice scene. Yeah, definitely. And it was a nice scene, but you knew that all the people that they were giving the gun to, somebody was going to get shot. I mean, they weren't going to have, they, they weren't going to have, they weren't going to have all of them just barely come close to, you know, not getting shot. And, and technically Jack was a quick thinker because <clears throat> when he, right before he pulled the trigger, he pulled the gun and shot the, and shot one of the prisoners. But if he would have used that trigger on himself, Jack would be gone. <laughs> so <laughs> Jack was very quick on his feet. And you know it had to come down to some sort of the Jack versus Ramon. That in theory one of them lives, one of them dies. Again, we know that they're both going to be fine, but it worked quite nicely. And you get a great line from Ramon saying, "If I die, my brother will find you." And they're just like, "We don't care. Just pull the trigger already." Yeah, <laughs> it was. Yeah, that that was definitely very good, very intense. And and then the way you see um, Chase through that too, because of course Chase has whatever information from CTU on the status of Kyle and like, Hey, they almost have him. They almost have him. We don't have to break him out right now. And Jack's not listening. We found Kyle singer. We found Kyle singer. (laughs) 
I want to know how what how, how does Jack explain it if, if Chase actually gets the message to him either when he's getting on the helicopter if they save him like one minute early or if Jack if he actually gets through to Jack when he's landing the helicopter or, or any stage how does Jack explain continuing on the run with Ramon yeah that would be almost impossible he would have to trust Chase so of course Chase already hasn't listened to Jack because Jack tried to get Chase to stand down before earlier in the prison but he just kept continuing anyway um and then of course after all of this chase well i guess it comes into the next one when he hijacks a plane and takes off to mexico after jack anyway but yeah but anyway we also have going on with uh, david palmer we haven't talked really much about his presidency so far and we come to find out that apparently he is uh has established a relationship a romantic relationship of sorts with his doctor and so that comes into play here and i don't know it's kind of like a forced plot in a lot of a lot of ways and so 24 always has at least one yeah <laughs> i don't think it, it wasn't played out as much as some of the other ones were like with the uh, terry amnesia or kim and gary mathis or anything like that but it was just kind of like a little subtle like eh, not not quite not quite sold on it. They kind of brought it in a little more weekly um, in there, and then it was just kind of just like a subtle little thing, and and then it became a major thing. So it's like okay, well, it doesn't make the subtleness of the early part make sense because it's like people know that this relationship is happening, but as they present it, it's like like it's not happening for a while. But I don't know. Anyway, putting the notes here, all this just exists, and that's very much how I feel. It kind of it's there. You cut to David Palmer and you know that this is bubbling on the underneath. You know, even if it is him having a conversation with Jack, him uh, having a conversation with Chappelle, him doing just stuff to do, to do with the Salazar stuff and the virus stuff. Even when that's happening, you know that this just exists there and it's fairly forgettable when that's happening and it's fairly forgettable when you're watching it as well. I mean, I'm very much in the Wayne Palmer camp in that I don't really like Anne. I don't think she works as a character. I don't really see the point of her. I'm not keen at all on the fact that it takes Anne to remind David of his morals in that he's going to blackmail, he's, sorry, he's going to pay off Anne's ex-husband to drop these allegations. Um, he can continue his relationship. He can continue with his campaigning. He can absolutely outfox Keeler in the debate because this is his trump card. This is his thing that's going to win in the debate. And suddenly David's going to take it away from him. I don't feel like... David compromising his morals at this stage and then needing to be reminded of it by Anne and him changing his mind on this. I don't think it works. She says about how to, to Wayne afterwards, she says that if he thought it was the right idea, he wouldn't have changed his mind. And yes, okay, fine. I get that. But why did he think it in the first place? This is not the David Palmer that we know. David Palmer we've seen for the first two seasons at no point would have thought, let's actually agree to this. And certainly not as quick, even if he did, certainly not as quickly as he did. Well, <clears throat> maybe the David Palmer of season one. Um, but as we saw in season two, David started to drift a little bit more to the uh, kind of gray area side of, uh, you know, as far as uh, holding Ron Whelan captive and torturing Roger Stanton. And, you know, he still did it for all the right reasons kind of like Jack, and he still had a moral compass. Um, but he was willing, he was a little bit more willing to do what needed to be done for the good of the country. 
so to speak. In season three, I think it kind of compounded on that. But then you also got to remember who his uh, chief of staff is. It's Wayne Palmer, who obviously replaces Mike Novick, who was relieved of his duties at the end of season two. But Wayne has something that Mike Novick didn't have, Wayne's family. David has a bit of a weakness when it comes to family. So I think the reason that he was able to agree a little bit quicker than he probably normally would have is probably because of the trust he has in his brother. The amount of trust that he has in Wayne. Wayne's a little bit more ambitious. He's uh, a little bit more cutthroat than his, uh, his brother is. So Wayne is willing to do what it takes, much like Mike was, to preserve his brother's presidency for another four years. From Wayland and Roger Stanton, you point out very well that that is where he compromises his morals. But he's also doing that because he has no other option. He is trying to stop a nuclear bomb. He's trying to protect the country. He's trying to stop panic, all of this stuff. It feels very um, sort of big picture With this, he insists that it's a lie and insists that it's a lie. Sort of everyone would assume that it's a lie. And, and you know, there's all the, the fact that they had this court testimony and all this stuff that he's perjured himself before. Okay, fine. It feels like he gives up very easily and this is for him as well you know it's not like he's doing this because oh it's best for the country only in the sense of that he feels he's the best person to lead the country not john keeler he's doing this because he wants four four more years of presidency and he's taking the easy way out and that's not like david david you know season one david his entire campaign his entire presidential campaign his entire career on revealing the truth about his son and that's the sort of person that he is. And this feels like it goes very much against that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it seems he's uh, he started to get to the point uh, to what he condemned in the first season. In the first season, he's like, okay, we're not going to play politics. We're not going to do stuff just to get votes, just to sway voters or whatever, or just keep certain people quiet. He's like, we're going to go out there. The truth is going to come out. I'm going to stand behind my integrity. But now he started to pander to that. And as Joel said, and probably partially because of his brother, his brother's job, first of all. And of course, probably a pride issue on that, too. It's like, my brother's president, so I'm going to keep him as president. So there's probably that part going on there, too. And then David himself, (laughs) it's like, okay, I've been president. Why not do another four years? And so whether that's because he's hungry for the power or for the control or or whatever. I mean, there is some of that because he gets very angry when he finds out that there is this whole secret thing. He gets very upset when he finds out that there's this whole secret plot going on. So he gets very upset when he finds out that there's this whole secret plot that is under, I mean, that kind of goes around his authority and things like that. And so I think he's gotten used to being able to call the shots on things and, at least be in the know on things. And he doesn't like when people try to keep it to where he he can't be accused. But anyway. And this is a weird stretch of episodes because it's 24 sort of tries to delve into the politics angle here. It sort of dips its toe in and then decides, actually, no, the water's too cold. I don't want to do this. You know, the, the episode, episode 5, 5 to 6 p.m. centers all around the debate. You know, it's, it opens on um, the introduction to the debate by the moderator. And then the next time that we actually cut back to it, it's 5.43. The only thing we see, you know, it appears in the split screens at the, at the start of an act in between there. And it feels very much like season three here 
sort of wants to go into the politics, you know, wants to explore the the blackmail and the debate stuff and the election stuff and all this, but also decides that it doesn't quite know how to do it and doesn't really want to do it. When it comes to Alan Milliken stuff, and we'll talk about that next week, it, it's sort of a large part of that revolves around a healthcare bill, which gets mentioned at the first time that Alan Milliken manages to get people to withdraw their support from it. And it feels like that's the sort of thing that if they wanted to do this debate angle, the politics angle, let's explore that now. Let's actually sort of understand what David Palmer's policies are a little bit here, rather than just making it about the scandal of he's in a relationship with someone who is possibly a criminal and is involved in this this conspiracy to cover up was it farms who can't quite remember you know i i don't feel like that's particularly engaging that the healthcare policy stuff isn't the most engaging either but it also but it does actually reflect on david as a character i don't feel like the Anne stuff and the way that it's portrayed and explored in the debate um that sort of minimal fashion i don't think it works at all i feel like um and this is kind of a trend with uh 24 presidents that they're more so a plot device than anything else. Um, they're more, they're more so there to um, kind of provide clarity, um, be the, 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 the final voice, so to speak. Um, and they, they, they try in various seasons to explore, you know, certain political issues like, you know, the treaties that Logan and, and Taylor are going to sign and health care bill for, for David. You know, they try to explore these little political issues, but they don't spend too much time on them before it reverts back to whatever pol- whatever political scandal that they're involved in. And, ev- and pretty much every president is involved in some kind of scandal in 24. Pretty much everyone. So I think they... Like you said, I think they don't really know how to um, or didn't know how to address the political issues other than little mentions here and there just to remind everybody that, hey, you know, he is the president. He's not just he's not just here to, you know, deal with terrorist threats. You know, he does have everyday issues to deal with as well. But then they quickly revert back to whatever scandal that said president might be involved in the one thing i do like about this plot is that or this arc in these episodes is that beyond the sort of occasional health check-in david palmer is fine he's fully recovered from his assassination attempt three years ago there's no sort of ongoing saga of oh is he fit to lead we've already done that is he okay is he we're doing that with jack i don't think that anyone would have benefited if there's also as well as all the stuff going on you know jack um sort of betraying david for a bit and uh, the stuff with Anne and Keeler and the debate and the scandals. I don't think anyone benefits if you add to that by saying, is David Palmer fit to still be in office? Is he still suffering the effects of his assassination attempt? Is he okay to... It doesn't work. I don't think that that's needed at all. So I, I quite appreciate that they just binned that and said, he's not quite 100% maybe. He has a check-in just to make sure that he is okay, but ultimately he's fine. We have no reason to, to be concerned he, he's going to get on, get on with it. I think that's the best approach. Having two character arts and two plot devices of the same variety for two different characters at the same time usually doesn't work out too well. <laughs> so it, because you're eventually going to repeat some of the same scenes. Like it's hard to have two character arcs um, that are the same going on simultaneously and not have some of the same scenes involved. 
the are you okay scenes, is he fit to lead or is he fit to work scenes. And we've done that already. We did that in season two. You, you can't really do that at the same time. And I think Jax was a little bit more, because like I said, we've already seen it with, with David, that we've been down that road. We haven't really been down that road with Jack because every time that he's, I mean, even in season two, when he had that depression stage at the first part of the season, once he showed up for work, there was no question whether he was, I mean, other than, you know, when he got tortured and had the heart condition way later in the season, but there was no question whether he was fit to do his job once he actually started doing it. But in season three, you start to see those doubts of can he actually do his job while he's compromised? Unfortunately, I mean, during the debate, it was interesting because Keeler brought up the, I mean, in reference to Anne specifically, but I think it does kind of come to play where Keeler is making the point that the way the president makes decisions in his personal life will affect the decision-making process that he does politically as a leader. And then the whole season is just kind of like a display of that very thing, of the fact that all of these personal connections that the president has is affecting the decision that he's making politically. And so I, I just thought that was kind of like just a kind of a little interesting thing that kind of got thrown in there. But when you look at the decisions that David makes throughout the season, a lot of them are made not because of his moral stance or his political stance. It's because it's affecting family, it's affecting himself or personal friendships as with like Jack and things like that. So he's making decisions because of those personal feelings and things like that. And so I, I think that's kind of interesting and not fault him because we all are like that. We all have those different things that influence us. But anyway, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this episode. So we thank you for listening. We'll come back next week to be able to watch Jack as he gets into Mexico and all the events that happen there leading up to trying to acquire the virus and all that kind of stuff. And so looking forward to being able to discuss all that as we get to yet another turning point in the season in the show. And so thank you, Bradley and Joel, uh, again, for joining us and sharing your wonderful insights as we go through this and uh, appreciate it for you that are listening. If you want to send in your feedback, go to 24faithful.com and you can be able to see how to leave feedback for us there. And we look forward to being with you next week. Mm -hmm.